Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Australians are a generous people, and we see that in particular when there are natural disasters, that sort of thing we, we want to give to help other Australians. And the trends that we see that giving is actually going up in Australia, but the data is sort of, there's different sources, but giving overall is going up. So Australians gave $13 billion to charities based on the most recent data from the ACNC. But the number of people participating in, in giving or as in donations of money is actually going down as a proportion of the population. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. Neon Treehouse are your go-to full-service digital marketing agency for bright and imaginative solutions. Learn more at neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. This week on the podcast, I bring you my conversation with Christian Seibert. Christian's a friend of mine and of the podcast and has previously been on in his role at the Centre for Social Impact and Philanthropy Australia. Christian is now Associate Commissioner at the Productivity Commission. The Productivity Commission provides independent research and advice to government on economic, social and environmental issues affecting the welfare of Australians. He is currently leading the Productivity Commission's Philanthropy Inquiry, which is the most wide-ranging review of public policy settings for philanthropy in Australian history. The draft report is now out and submissions in response close on the 9th of February. The Commission is engaging extensively to inform their thinking, and this is a great opportunity to get involved and help shape the future of philanthropy and giving in Australia. To check out the draft report and to make a submission, just head to pc.gov.au, hit the inquiries menu, and then hit philanthropy, and I'll also include a link in our show notes. This is an amazing episode where we discuss the role of the Productivity Commission in optimizing the well-being of Australians and ensuring that Australians can continue to be generous, charitable donors and to ensure philanthropy flourishes now and into the future. We've got some terrific promotional partners lined up for 2024, and I'm looking forward to sharing more on this with you in coming weeks. If you'd like to secure your season, one-month or two-month promotional package, now's a great time to do so because we've only got 10 months left in our calendar year and half our spots are booked already. We've had some great feedback from clients to date who are seeing increased website and social media traffic, increased product and service sales and lead generation, more inbound queries, and great reputational gains too. Whatever your marketing goals or needs are, we can work on a winning solution together. To learn more, just check out the link in our show notes with some more info or head to humansofpurpose.com and click on our partners page. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Christian as much as I did. Christian, welcome back to the pod. It's been a while, mate. Uh, great to be on um, the podcast with you, Mike. It's been ages, so you're looking very schmick. Are you in Canberra right now? No, I'm, I'm in Melbourne, so I'm Melbourne-based. I'm out in the um, eastern suburbs in Melbourne where I live. And you wouldn't even come into the Commons to sit with me, have a coffee and record? <laughs> I, I, I love coming to the city. I come into the city three or four times a week, and um, I do like to get about. I, I, during COVID, I was living in Brighton in Bayside, so 
really enjoyed having the the beach nearby there and Brighton's where we first lived when we came to Australia in the 1980s as well so it was nice to be back there for a couple of years so we'll have to make another time to catch up then because I thought we were remote we were remote for a reason but not really so all good let's get into it because I, I think you know you've been on before and you talked a bit about your journey but I I first came across your work when you're at the Center for Social Impact and also working for advising philanthropy australia you're also doing some exceptional work in tax and reform around charitable giving take us through your journey a little bit your your, your career journey and what got you to where you are today at the productivity commission yeah so like i said just before i'm i was actually born overseas so i was born in in poland in 1982 and came to australia when i was just under three years old in the mid 1980s and from a really young age my parents really instilled in me a real desire to make a contribution to, to shape the place where I'm at. And I feel that my parents sort of really set powerful examples for me in that regard. And I've always been interested in ideas, curious about public policy problems and how to solve them in order to create a more yeah, inclusive, prosperous society and, and, and community. And I think that that sort of in a roundabout way led me to where I am now, it's, I always say when, I, when I'm done teaching at the Centre for Social Impact, and it's mostly postgraduate students, although there are some undergraduate students now that we teach, I often say that when I was at university and I was studying economics and, and law at Deakin University, I didn't have an idea that there was a not-for-profit sector. I mean, I knew that there are charities and I knew, I'd been to the, the, the Sydney Maya Music Bowl and so I knew that there, was, you know, there are wealthy benefactors that make donations Etc. But I don't really think that there's like this other sector. I thought there's like the, the public sector, government, the, the private sector, business, and they're sort of your options. And then I, I, I studied a master's degree at the London School of Economics, a, a master's focused on regulation because um, I am a regulation nerd and I find it really fascinating and interesting how governments and, and others can try and shape the way we behave, businesses behave, charities behave. When I came back to Australia, I got a job in the Australian government as an advisor. And one of my jobs for a minister that I worked for was setting up the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, getting the legislation through the parliament and also the, the Charities Act, which is a, a statutory definition of charity. And I sort of discovered this whole other sector that worked towards benefiting the community, benefiting society. And yeah, my eyes really opened. I, I, you know, I had some awareness of it, but not to that extent. And that sort of made me think that sort of when I finished up working in Canberra, I wanted to, to move into the, the not-for-profit sector. And I was fortunate enough to get the role with Philanthropy Australia as its um, policy and research manager, later became called the Advocacy and Insight Manager. And yeah, it was a really unique opportunity to work for an organisation like that. Philanthropy Australia is the peak body for the philanthropic sector in Australia. Um, it includes trusts, foundations, charities and others. Yeah, and it's focused on, on more and better philanthropy. And having an opportunity to work there with those people in that sector to try and build a policy agenda for philanthropy and a broader not-for-profit sector as well. And uh, yeah, I was involved with Philanthropy Australia actually until still this year, the middle of this year. But then a few years ago, I, <clears throat> I had the opportunity to move over to the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne University of Technology. So it's a, it's a research centre. It does teaching too, focused on social impact, so the not-for-profit sector, philanthropy, social investment, those sorts of things. And yeah, I did teaching and research there, continued my involvement with Philanthropy Australia, 
but you've got to teach subjects like philanthropy, corporate social responsibility, that sort of thing. And all the while, I was still very much involved in the policy debates and discussions. I was still very much involved with Philanthropy Australia. And during COVID, Philanthropy Australia commissioned Social Ventures Australia to do this big report around setting a policy agenda for philanthropy. It was called a blueprint to grow structured giving in Australia. That's where the first sort of mention of the the doubling giving objective came from. That was doubling structured giving back then. And then the now Australian government, but back when they were in opposition, the Assistant Minister for Charities now, who is the Shadow Assistant Minister for Charities, Andrew Lee, sort of, yeah, took an interest in that work and the opposition adopted that objective double giving. And then when they came into government, they, yeah, started to do the work about, well, you know, what does that mean? How do we do that? And that's where this productivity commission inquiry that I'm involved in came about because the inquiry that I'm an associate commissioner jointly leading is focused on, yeah, identifying barriers to giving opportunities to reform, taxation, regulation, et cetera, in order to, to support giving into the future. Fantastic. And wouldn't you talk about philanthropy and this wide-ranging inquiry? Is that focused on individual as well as large institutions? Is it sort of a Yeah, so it's a really expansive definition of, of philanthropy, actually, like our terms of reference, which are the sort of instructions we get from government, ask us to also focus on volunteering. So we're looking at philanthropy and it's all its different forms, big, small, donations of money, donations of time. I mean, the issues can be different, but yeah, it's, it's a very holistic view of philanthropy, which is great. It also does raise challenges because the issues can be very different, say, when it comes to donating money versus donating time. And then, again, it's different when you look at, say, donating money through a, a, a private foundation when you've got lots of money to donate versus, you know, an individual donor that donates sort of every month, that sort of thing. When the proposal was there around uh, structured, like doubling structured giving, was that referring to big philanthropy or also to people? Yeah. Yeah, so it was focused more on sort of structured giving through foundations, et cetera, reflecting that sort of where Philanthropy Australia's focus is. But uh, the government has since adopted the, the, the broader goal to double giving by, by 2030. And yeah, I think the clear message there is that they want to double, substantially increase giving, but in all its different forms as well. So it's a, it's a more yeah, holistic view of giving. How generous are we as a society? So. Australia, Australians are a generous people, and we see that in particular when there are natural disasters, that sort of thing. We we want to give to help other Australians, and the trends that we see that giving is actually going up in Australia, but it's the the it's, the data is sort of the, the different sources of data, but giving overall is going up. So Australians gave thirteen billion dollars to charities based on the most recent data from the ACNC. But the number of people participating in in giving or as in donations of money is actually going down as a proportion of the population. That's the number of people claiming a tax deduction for a donation and mm. not a perfect measure. The number of you know, pe- people claiming those deductions is going down. And then we see with volunteering, for example, that formal volunteering, so that's volunteering through an organisation like a charity, is going down, but then the people are also volunteering in different ways. So I think Australians are absolutely a, a generous people and there are some positive trends, but there are also some concerning trends, but there are also some changes. So 
giving through like, you know, like giving vehicles or, or structures like private ancillary funds, public ancillary funds is increasing and it's taking up a larger slice of giving. And then corporates are playing more of a role, but we don't have such good data there. But yeah, overall, I'd say Australians are, are generous people, but it's also important to look at this holistically as well. So you can look at these kind of comparisons about you know, giving as a percentage of GDP and look at what the US has got and what Australia's got. But yeah, you can't look at it too narrowly because we have a, a range of different ways that we try and support each other in a community. And it can include through government paying taxes and providing services, et cetera. And yeah, the situation, say, in the US is very different to Australia. So I think you need to look at it broadly like that. I suppose it's been a challenging couple of years. I mean, COVID lasted for a very long time. Uh, obviously, different parts of Australia had different challenges there, but also cost of living crisis sort of made it really difficult. And I think, you know, in a way, my perception, correct me if I'm wrong, has been more that, you know, giving has been more of a luxury item for Australians in recent times because of the the pressures that households are under. What's your reflection on sort of the, the change since maybe 2020 mm. to today? Mm. Yeah, so. Over time, like the, the growth in giving has been driven by higher incomes, particularly sort of further up the income spectrum. And I think that, yeah, the, the economy overall is a mixed picture in the sense that in, in some parts, some parts of the income spectrum, people are, you know, dealing with cost of living and, and, and those sorts of challenges and their ability to give is more restricted. But then there are others that have a lot of wealth and, and have done well and, and their giving is increasing. So there's a, a mixed picture. There, there, there has been some polling done though about sort of perceptions of charities and that sort of thing. And it, it's it, it's interesting because people, when the sort of when they're experiencing cost of living pressures and they don't might not have the financial capacity to give as much, they still do see charities as playing a really important role because they're sort of they they think oh you know I'm I'm up against it and things are really tough for me. Well, when things sort of don't work out for people in the community. Charities are often the, the only ones there sort of to, to support them and to help them. So perhaps it even sort of when people experience their own challenges and difficulties, it makes them understand sort of the role and importance of charities in the, in the community, um, even if they themselves don't need to use them. Very well said. And, and do you find it hard? I mean, getting all the data right must be an incredibly challenging task to interpolate because you've also got the role of vehicles for social good like social enterprises that might not be charities and then b corps or purpose-driven businesses where people are trying to ostensibly make some sort of positive impact through their use of an alternative or substitute service so how, how, do, you, how do you think about that yeah and i mean i think in general there's a lot of data that we've got there's some areas where we've got d- gaps in data whether it's about sort of bequests when you pass away giving through your will and corporate giving but there's a lot more data now than we had say 10 years ago on giving but then, like you said, there's also a blurring. Like I think once upon a time you had sort of business, charities and not-for-profits, government, and they kind of more stuck to their lanes and a business might do something and then you know sell a product, provide services, and then take some of its profits to do philanthropy. But now you see this blurring. Businesses are, can be for-profit, but they can also have a social purpose, whether it's a, a B Corp type business or other businesses, and they really more consciously think about their responsibilities to stakeholders more broadly, not just sort of their customers, but what does the wider community think about us, their social license to operate, they're more conscious 
about that. And I think partly it's also a change that's resulted from customers have got different expectations. We want to shop somewhere that we think sort of is is acting responsibly, where um, it's not acting against our values. People want to work for organisations that align in that sort of way. And I think societal expectations are changing, and and so business is changing too. And there is a bit of a a blurring about you know the role of business and, and the social enterprise, but also there's a blurring around the role of, of charities and not for profits. So many charities and not for profits operating now in markets, whether it's in disabilities or aged care, and they can be competing against for profits as well. So you've got not for profits and charities that are having to basically sort of, yeah, adopt a very business-like approach to what they do. And the challenge I think can be how they blend their not-for-profit charity ethos, their values, their purpose, and make that distinct whilst operating in a in a market with for profits as well. Very well said. And so moving to the Productivity Commission, I think it's probably important to start with a bit of an understanding of what it is, what it does, the role that it plays, and then let's move on to the inquiry, the draft report, and, and the philanthropy in Australia and the implications of that report too. Sure. So the Productivity Commission is a, an independent Australian government body, and it's a an independent research and advisory body that was established by the Australian government in the in the late 1990s. So it's been around for some time, and it focuses on economic, social, and environmental issues. And usually, the way that it works is that the government will ask it to do an inquiry or a study into a particular area, and yeah, it undertakes an evidence-based analysis. It tries to develop, yeah, marshal all the evidence, analysis, policy ideas from stakeholders and others, and yeah, basically do all that work to come up with recommendations for policy change by government. And the, the overall focus really is better policies that are in the long-term interests of the wider Australian community. So it's quite a unique government body in terms of many other countries have a body like this. And I think some of the distinct aspects of it are that it's different to say a government department, for example, in the sense that it is independent, it's open and transparent. There's a strong emphasis on public consultation and engagement and, and testing of ideas and, and the use of evidence, policy arguments to, to look at an issue and what could be changed, why, what could be the unintended consequences, that sort of thing. And it adopts that, yeah, that economy and community wide perspective. So yeah, it's really a unique organization. And yeah, it's been responsible for many significant reforms. I mean, the NDIS, for example, was a, a, a product of a Productivity Commission inquiry. Even the ACNC, the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, it was the result of the, the Productivity Commission's 2010 study into the contribution of the, the not-for-profit sector. So it's influenced policy in Australia in many different ways. And um, yeah, the government is also, we've got a new chair that started with us, Danielle Wood, and the government's also given the Productivity Commission a, a statement of expectation, which is a document that sets out how the government sort of would like it to sort of work with the government and fulfil its functions under the Act. So it's, a, it's an exciting time for the organisation. It's terrific. And so what does productivity mean to you and also to the Commission? Because I think for myself and uh, some of my colleagues and other economics and policy geeks, we sort of see the Productivity Commission as like this um, 
this institute that comes up with uh, what's going on and what are the big new ideas that could take us forward as an economy? Yeah. I mean, I think some people can have an, an, an aversion to productivity or efficiency, those terms. But I think that in many ways, really productivity, efficiency is finding new ways to do things, to solve problems in a way that's more effective, benefits more people. And I think if we look at, say, the the, the challenges in terms of our aging population and the care needs in the community, things like productivity, efficiency, they can sound like they can be sometimes interpreted as meaning cuts, but I don't think it, it means that. I think it's about, well, how do we deliver better care and support for people when you've got an aging population in a way that yeah, meets their needs, that promotes their well-being, that sort of thing. So it's about, yeah, finding new ways, innovative ways to, to do things with the resources that we've got available. And yeah, the, the way that you do that is you think about the evidence, you think about all the different options, and you try and adopt a really broad perspective on, on how to yeah, address the, the issues that you've identified. I think you addressed that really well because I think productivity and efficiency are words that scare a lot of um, thinkers because you automatically think ERC, razor gangs, you know, what are we going to cut out of next year's budget to make things smoother? But I think that emphasis on making things work better, innovation, and a focus on social and economic well-being at a population level, and particularly for for groups that are struggling, is really fundamental too. Yeah, and you consider, I think it can be viewed as a being for a kind of narrow economic measure, but it includes sort of the consideration of things that sort of matter to us in the community and in society. And, you know, it's been very sort of much reflected in the philanthropy inquiry. And it's a really a, a, a broader way of, of thinking about things because I think in the end, for example, let's just say we take the example of health and medical research. It's about sort of finding new ideas, new methods, new approaches to solving complex problems when it comes to health. And that is ultimately about productivity. And, you know, I think we'd all say that we benefited from all the productivity enhancements when it comes to sort of health and medical research over the last 10 or 20 or 30 years. Very well said. Very well said. Now, onto the philanthropy inquiry and the draft report. So this is the, the most wide ranging philanthropy inquiry in public policy settings in Australian history in philanthropy. Mm. So Take us on that journey. How did this? You talked a bit about the history of how it came about, but what does that mean in terms of how you design your consultation and 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 the size, scale, and inputs in a process like this? Yeah, so yeah, it is very wide ranging and and broad, and as far as I can tell, even sort of around the world. And there's only I think one sort of inquiry like this in the 1970s in the US, the Filer Commission, which looked at philanthropy sort of in as much depth as as this inquiry. So. We commenced in February this year, and the government asked the Productivity Commission to undertake this inquiry to analyse motivations for philanthropic giving in all its different forms and identify opportunities to grow it further. So, yeah, we've been really keen from the outset to consult and engage really widely and deeply because although it might sound kind of specific philanthropy, if you so if I'm looking at our, our draft report, like there's a lot of detail in our recommendations and our findings. And when you're focusing on the detail, you need to sort of engage very extensively to get the detail right and to draft reports. So we'll now be getting feedback on that. But yeah, we've had over 270 submissions earlier in the inquiry and we've conducted over 100 
meetings and roundtables with a diverse range of different stakeholders, charities, philanthropic um, organisations, other government bodies, individual donors, volunteers, volu and organisations that rely on on volunteers. And we've also had a, a specific focus on engaging with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and organisations to try and ensure that yeah we centre our thinking in their stories, experiences, perspectives on philanthropy, reflecting the fact that our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in Australia have practised traditions of altruism, generosity, reciprocity for tens of thousands of years, and they also engage with philanthropy as well when seeking to further their, their own objectives and ambitions for their community. When you do a consultation like this, how wide do you go in terms of looking at impact and sort of tracing the dollars? Because you've got obviously the givers, so big philanthropy, people, businesses, institutions, then you've got the recipients, the charities, those with DGR and those without and whatnot. But then you've got the end users or the beneficiaries of what happens and the volunteers. So you mentioned speaking to, to volunteers. Do you, is there a lot of um, speaking with or consultation co-design with people who are the, the recipients or the beneficiaries of, of this um, of this philanthropy? Yeah, so we've tried to do that. And I think that one of the challenges is that it can be, it can. I think it's really important co-design policies with those that sort of those policies affect as a general principle. I think in the context of our inquiry, we have engaged with organisations that that receive philanthropy and engage with others that to, to use that philanthropy to, to provide services to, to others. I think it's it can be hard to get to sort of the the end recipient sort of directly, but it's something that have been we have been thinking about as well. And I think that also the the challenge for us as well is that we're thinking about the policies, so taxation, regulation, that sort of thing, and there are. There are things that government can and should do in terms of supporting philanthropy and the role of philanthropy. But then there are a lot of things too that comes down to sort of philanthropic organisations, to charities and not-for-profits, et cetera, what they do once they have philanthropy. And there are limits to what government can or and should do. But then there's lots of things that philanthropic organisations, charities that, that can do themselves and are doing when it comes to things such as yeah, co-design, impact measurement, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, th I think probably taking you a bit down a rabbit hole there of um, the effectiveness of charities rather than the structural uh, review that you're doing. So yeah, apologies do, for that. We do look at that though. So in chapter nine, actually, of our draft report, we look at sort of the information that's available to donors and the wider public about charities. And we, we actually, we make, we have a, a draft finding where we say that really standardized, standardized measures of effectiveness can create problems as well because they might oversimplify things and some things are really hard to measure. And then some measures that some people use as a kind of like a proxy for effectiveness, so the percentage that a charity spends on administration costs or overhead costs can come up a lot. Well, they're actually really inaccurate measures of effectiveness right. and performance. And so we actually we point that out in the draft report. Such an important point. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had about that recently that the I think people who haven't worked in the not-for-profit space have a huge misunderstanding around overheads and administrative costs and sort of like the what it takes to innovate and grow and develop and be better at delivering core services. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, very and pleasing. And there's research that shows that you know that, that where charities might underinvest in that, or and you know it's a result of can often be a result of 
community expectations or donor expectations, etc. Well, if they underinvest in key capabilities, core capacities, well, then it's harder for them to have impact and effectiveness. And there's research that shows that, yeah, like it's a it's a really poor measure of performance and effectiveness, but it does persist. People still it, 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 it'd sort of be like if you said, oh, some of the top companies in the world should spend less on R and D. Yeah, or I mean, I think it came up in the context of the the bushfires a few years ago. Sort of, all oh, the percentage that the charities are spending on administration and expenses. And I had a, a radio interview at the time, and I sort of said bluntly that, you know, when people donate to a charity, if if they wanted to spend, ne- you know, nothing on administration and overhead, that would involve just taking the money that's being donated, putting it in a bucket, and leaving it on the side of the you know on the side of the road for anyone to take. I mean, that's very low overhead and expenses. But you need to employ people. You need to those people that will deliver the services, work with the community, take that money and turn it into something that actually benefits the community. Isn't it funny how like in a business, it'll be called workforce in a charity, it's called overhead? Yeah. And and in the end, you have to make judgments about, you know, what you're investing in, what you're spending your money on. And, and you know, charities have got strong incentives to, to sort of share information about their operations with donors. But yeah, unfortunately, if people sort of fixate on a particular measure like that and it's not a good measure and then donate on the basis of it and then charities have to react to that. You get this starvation cycle when um, you're not investing enough in core capabilities and then you, you, that expectation is kind of reinforced within the community as well. And yeah, it's really problematic. Let's talk about some of the barriers to giving including uh, or, or receiving, including DGR status, uh, because heard from a number of people running not-for-profits or charities how hard it is to get DGR status. And then, you know, obviously a lot of people are looking to claim deductions on their giving and that they, they want to give to charities that have that DGR status. But talk yeah. us through some of the challenges there, both from the giver and recipient side. Yeah. So the deductible gift recipient system, the DGR system, basically allows Australians to get a tax deduction when donating to many charities and some other organisations. So we've actually done some analysis and it's the first analysis that's been done on this by a government agency sort of would nearly had the gift, the deduction for donations for nearly had it for a hundred years. And this analysis has never been done until now by a government agency to look at, well, does it actually increase giving? Does it actually influence giving? And got some more work to do on that for the final report. But we looked at the, the DGR system. It's been a major focus of our work because really it is, it's, the, it's the foundations of the of the way that government tries to support the giving of money, and we we've concluded that the the DGR system is not fit for purpose, and that reform is needed. It's poorly designed. It's unnecessarily complex, and that imposes costs on charities, creates confusion for the donating public. It arbitrarily and randomly excludes many causes and charities for no logical reason. So. I've got a couple of examples, but a charity preventing illnesses in children would fit the eligibility criteria to receive tax-deductible donations, but not a charity that tries to prevent injuries in children. It's ineligible. A charity with like a general focus on social well-being, so you you might have a a neighbourhood house or a community centre near you, often it it misses out on DGR status because it's got too broad a a focus on community well-being. But one anecdote that we actually got a submission from an organization that said that their their international that the international organization that they're a, a part of won the Nobel Peace Prize, the international campaign against nuclear weapons. But 
they aren't eligible to receive tax-deductible donations in Australia, so they can win the Nobel Peace Prize, but they can't get DGR status, which is an indication that the system probably isn't working as it should. Yeah, good pick up, and glad that person wrote in. That's certainly important. <laughs> mm. So that's DGR status. Obviously, simplifying that will be big and very helpful if when it happens. Let's talk about First Nations people and, and sort of the work, some of the key work there and the drivers of that work and why that's so important and, and what your early findings are. Mm. Yeah, so we, as I said earlier, we've tried to centre our, our inquiry in the, the, the stories, experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and organisations. And yeah, we, we've engaged with a lot of those organisations to understand their different perspectives on philanthropy and, and altruism. And it's important to recognise too that terms like philanthropy, volunteering, etc., Words are useful when there's a, a kind of a, a common meaning or a shared meaning, but in many different communities, people practice generosity. They donate money to organizations, family, friends, or they volunteer, etc. but they don't think of it as philanthropy. They don't think of it as, as volunteering necessarily. So we have identified that, yeah, particularly when it comes to volunteering in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, that term can cause challenges in terms of measuring and understanding what the, the, the practices are, et cetera. And then, yeah, if it's not measured, then it's hard to sort of make um, judgments about policies that could support it. And so we've made some comments around that. But we've also seen that, yeah, some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities are, are furthering their own goals and aspirations through partnerships with philanthropy. So we have a, a case study of the, um, the, the Maranooka Justice Reinvestment Project in Burke, New South Wales where the, the Indigenous community there has um, developed their own solutions to a range of challenges in the community associated with um, yeah, recidivism and, and, and the way that the justice system is implemented. And they did that. Yeah, they, they, they effectively practiced, practiced self-determination and shaped the way that they want to do things when government wasn't listening and philanthropy supported them to do that. And um, that the learnings from there are now spread, spreading to other communities. And I think it's a good example of, of when the right kind of partnerships and the right kind of support from philanthropy can support self-determination and, and empower communities. But at the same time, we've also had feedback that, yeah, that sometimes philanthropic funding is provided in a way that doesn't meet the, the, the needs and, and aspirations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and organisations, it's it's not the right fit, and it can cause some real challenges and difficulties. So philanthropy you know, does lots of positive things in the community, but there's different ways to give a dollar, and that dollar can be used in different ways. And there's examples when it can be too restrictive, too overbearing, and yeah, have the opposite effect rather than supporting self determination can have the opposite effect. So we've heard that too, and. So that has informed our thinking. We've got a draft recommendation that the Australian government support the establishment of an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander philanthropic foundation, which would facilitate new partnerships with philanthropy to further the goals and aspirations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So yeah, we're proposing that it be that the, the development of that in terms of the establishment of it be led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but that the Australian government provides some initial funding towards an, an endowment with additional con contributions from philanthropic funders. Fantastic. That sounds like a really positive step. 
the last thing you cite in sort of some of the draft overview is the idea around uh, establishing a national charity regulators forum to create a more formalized regulatory architecture. What's that one about? Yeah, so we um we looked at all the different levers. So we've looked at yeah, we talked about sort of taxation. We looked at sort of the role of information for donors. We also looked at regulation. So we it's now eleven years old. The ACNC, the um, the national charities regulator. We didn't review the entire framework and all its legislation, but regulation of charities is tied to giving in the sense that trust and confidence can support giving. We've seen overseas when there are crises in trust and confidence that has an impact on giving. So a regulatory framework that enables people to, to give with confidence is important. So we made a number of recommendations around the scope of the ACNC's role, um, its powers, but we also sort of saw that charities in Australia are actually often regulated by multiple organisations. There can be the ACNC, there can maybe be a state and territory body that regulates them as well. And so there's actually sort of a number of different organisations that are effectively like the stewards of the, the regulatory framework for charities. And there's a lot of collaboration and cooperation between those different bodies, but we thought that better to formalise it and set up this forum where there's like formal collaboration and cooperation. And I think it could be particularly useful like if there was some major event or some sort of a, say, a, a crisis or something like that, and they've happened elsewhere, this forum could be convened and then everybody's talking, working out who's responsible for what. There can be transparency about next steps. And I think it sends a really positive signal to the community, to the media and others that, that there are organisations that exist to step in where necessary and to support trust and confidence and that they're on it when there's a need to act. That sounds fantastic. I, I think I want to take you outside the scope of this inquiry briefly and talk about broader trends around productivity. And obviously, we'll come back to the inquiry and how people can help to shape that final report too and be a part of that. But wondered what some of the sort of key changes or trends that you're seeing sort of particularly from 2020 to now that have affected or impacted on our productivity in Australia. When I say that, I'm thinking about things like working from home or that that sort of change from, you know, more more locality given necessity and given the force of habit uh, over mm. time. Maybe also thinking about the rise uh, or normalization of artificial and general artificial mm. intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. And I think that we're sort of we've been seeing now sort of like a period of of consistently lower growth in productivity. And I think that there's a, a variety of factors that have affected that. I think one of them is is that I mean I'm interested in electronic music, like synthesizers and that sort of thing. And I've got during COVID actually, sort of I, I bought quite a few vintage units from the 1980s, and I saw that even in that context, like you look at sort of what was available in 1980 and what was available in 1990, the change in technology was remarkable in terms of the productivity with making electronic music. And so you think about the broader effects of that in society, in economy, in, in the economy, in so many different ways. At the, in 1980, if you were writing a book, you wrote it on a typewriter. In 1990, you wrote it on a word processor, as they called it, then a computer. And then in 2000, when you were writing that book on your computer, you could look stuff up, stuff up on the internet. In 2010 or 2015, you could, you know, have your iPad next to you while you're typing, and you could look up stuff. So the, tech, the, the, the role of technology has been immense. And then at the same time, so many different government policies were changed to enhance productivity as well. 
But then in, I think, more recent years, there's a lot of those productivity gains have, have happened. They've been factored in. And now it's sort of, hard. we don't have those same technological changes. We don't have those same sort of easy, relatively easy wins in terms of government policies to support productivity. And the areas where we can sort of maybe have challenges with productivity are kind of ones where there's a real high dependence on 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 human labor, um, in the care economy, et cetera. And there's a lot of thinking about, you know, how we can support productivity there because it's important, just like I said at the start of the episode, in terms of providing better better quality and accessible care. But I think it's the unknown is yeah, AI and and what the next sort of technological change could be. It's got a lot of potential. But I think that there's also the changes in terms of working from home and and this is just my own little kind of hypothetical. I think that you know COVID changed the way that we live and approach things. And we had two years where we we're sort of, especially if you're in Victoria, spending more time at home, etc. And you know, perhaps there's still a little bit of lingering exhaustion from that, etc. And we're still mm-hmm. trying to work out to engage how to structure things in that post-COVID world. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I think a lot about the role of local community and hyperlocalization as a trend and. I also think about how organisations have almost been pressured to be more flexible by pe- like workforce demand to say, look, I actually really like working from home and maybe I don't want to come into the city or the office or wherever that is. And, you know, it's sort of the, the, the terms of, you know, the, the terms of trade, so to speak, in terms of what people's preferences are have changed. And I even think about how more how much more engaged I am in the civics of my small local suburban you know, seeing the the cafe owners every day and the, you know, my local dog park WhatsApp group and, the, you know, the street Christmas party and the, you know, getting to know your neighbours better. It's been a really interesting change and and I wonder what impact that, that'll have. And much like your synthesizer thing, I mean, that's that's fantastic. I did want to talk to you about electronic music at some stage, but for me, my, my big price realisation or revelation was not around a hobby. It was just around starting a new job soon in the in the city i expected parking to be you know 60 bucks 70 bucks a day like it was you know a year or two ago because it's been quite a while since it's in the city it's 13 dollars or 12 dollars mm. to park for the day mm. it's interesting what that says to me just as like a economics geek around the the uh, drop in demand for for city parking a lot of these huge nebulous car parks everywhere and how people's habits have changed yeah i mean i think i think say before in society, we have sort of laws and rules that sort of govern what we can do and we can't do. But there's also all these like unwritten laws and rules, like the norms that we have that guide our behaviour. I think before COVID, you know, one of the norms was that you know if you've got a job in an office, you got to be there Monday to Friday from you know nine to five or etc. Whereas like COVID, you know, required us to sort of rethink that. And it's like, oh wow, well if I've got a computer and I've got internet access, I can work from from home. But then I think we're still trying to work out well what's the balance because there there are you know the benefits to face to face contact but then some people also want to work from home like I like to go in the office but then I do like to have a day or two at home and we kind of just don't know how to sort of set those boundaries those rules I think that we're still trying to work all of that out. Yeah, I'm really impressed that you're wearing a shirt by the way given that you're at home and I'm in the co work space and I'm, I'm far more <laughs> casually dressed than you are for those that can't see but yeah we we have a lot to work out. I mean, amazing work that you're doing on this inquiry in particular. I think it's long overdue and, and much needed. You're at the draft stage at the moment, so people can definitely check out that draft report online, can't they? Yeah, so the draft report's available. There are a range of different fact sheets as well. So 
submissions in response to the draft report close on the 9th of February, but people don't, if they, they can make a submission or their organization can make a submission. But also, we're really keen to just hear individual perspectives from the community. And another thing that you can do is go to our inquiry website and just leave a brief comment. So it doesn't have to be a, a full sort of submission. It can be a couple of sentences or a couple of paragraphs. So there's lots of different ways to be involved. We'll have public hearings in February as well in different places around Australia. And then we'll be working very intensively to finish the draft, the, the, the final report to provide it to the Australian government in May 2024. Oh, fantastic. So let's imagine this will be out in the second week of January, which will give people plenty of time to mm. jump online and, um, and make a, a submission if they want to. Uh, so what website should they go to to do that? So yeah, if you just go to www.pc.gov.au and then you'll have all the different inquiries that are there and there is the, the philanthropy inquiry there and you can yeah access the, the draft report, the overview, the summary and yeah some fact sheets as well that explain it in the key reforms and proposals. Um, so yeah, pc.gov.au slash philanthropy is the exact website for this inquiry. Fantastic. And how can people connect with you and learn more about your work, Christian, and also electronic synth music if they want to do that too? <laughs> so I'm on LinkedIn, but yep. I'm always happy to connect there. I'm on Twitter, although I don't use it that much. And yeah, like, yeah I like to be really accessible and, and you know, happy to ca- catch up for a, a chat and that sort of thing. So yeah, very happy to connect. Thanks for being with me, mate. Stick around and let's have a debrief. Yep. Sounds good. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.